Hi everyone, um, thank you for joining me here again today. Um, I'm going to try to make it a little bit more professional. Um, the book I'm reading from right now is Psycho-Cybernetics. And the book was, I believe it was copyrighted in 1960. I'm reading from the 1967 um, edition. And uh, sorry for the crackling in the background. Uh, this is a very, very old and delicate book. Um, I've been reading for, I've had it with me for many, many years. Interesting uh, story. Um, I was listening to an audio cassette on um, memory, mega memory it was, by Kevin Trudeau. And he mentioned in his in his speaking um, on, that, on those cassette tapes, he mentioned the book Psycho-Cybernetics. And I thought to myself, that sounds really interesting. That sounds like um, familiar. And I happened to look at our um, bookshelf, and there was the book, Psycho-Cybernetics. I'm like, oh, wow. We do have the book. That was even more odd. And um, what I found is that uh, my daughter's mother had picked it up for me at a garage sale for 10 cents, said that looks like something Jasper would be interested in. Um, Little did she know, I couldn't really read at the time that well. Um, I had a reading comprehension problem, but um, we she identified it, um, and we figured it out. And here we are today. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying I'm an excellent reader, uh, and hopefully you guys can stick with me, but here goes nothing. So, or am I on the wrong page already? Ugh. Discovering the success me mechanism within you. It may seem strange, but it is nevertheless true that up until 10 years ago, scientists had no idea just how the human brain and nervous system worked purposely or to achieve a goal. They knew what happened from having made long and meticulous observations but no single theory of underlying principles tied all these phenomena together into a concept that made sense. R.W. Gerard, writing in Scientific Monthly in June 1946 on the brain and imagination, stated that it was sad but true that most of our understanding of the mind would remain as valid and useful if, for all we knew, the cranium, were stuffed with cotton wadding. However, when man himself set out to build an electronic brain and to construct goal-striving mechanisms of his own, he had to discover and utilize certain basic principles. Having discovered them, these scientists began to ask themselves, could this be the way that the human brain worked also? Could it be that in making man, our creator had provided us with a servio mechanism more marv marvelous and wonderful than any electronic brain or guidance system ever dreamed of by man, but operating according to the same basic principles? In the opinion of famous cybernetic scientists like Dr. Norbert Weimer, Dr. John von Neumann, and others, the answer was a qualified, unqualified yes. Your built-in guidance system. 
Every little thing has a built-in guidance system or goal-striving device put there by its creator to help it achieve its goal, which is, in broad terms, to live. In the simpler forms of life, the goal to live simply means physically survi physical survival for both the individual and the species. The built-in mechanism in animals is limited to finding food and shelter, avoiding or overcoming enemies and hazards, and procreation to ensure the survival of the species. In man, the goal to live means more than mere survival. For an animal to live simply means that certain physical needs must be met. Man has certain emotional and spiritual needs, which animals do not have. Consequently, for man to live encompass more than physical survival and procreation of the species, it requires certain emotional and spiritual satisfactions as well. Man's built-in success mechanism also is much broader is much broader in scope than an animal's. In addition to helping man avoid or overcome danger and the sexual instinct, which helps keep the race alive, the success mechanism in man can help him get answers to problems, invent, write poetry, run a business, sell merchandise, explore new horizons in science, attain more peace of mind, develop a better personality, or achieve success in any other activity which is intimately tied in to his living or makes for a fuller life. The success in instinct. A squirrel does not have to be taught how to gather nuts, nor does it need to learn that it should store them for the winter. A squirrel born in the spring has never experienced winter, yet in the fall of the year, it can be observed busily storing nuts to be eaten during the winter months when there will be no food to be gathered. A bird does not need to take lessons in nest building, nor does it need to take courses in navigation. Yet birds do navigate thousands of miles, sometimes over open sea. They have no newspaper or TV to give them the weather reports, no books written by explorer or pioneer birds to map out for them the warm areas of the earth. Nonetheless, the birds know when cold weather is imminent and the exact location of the warm climate, even though it may be thousands of miles away. That's why we get all those snowbirds down here in Florida. <laughs> Somehow you know, huh? In attempting to explain such things, we usually say that animals have certain instincts which guide them. Analyze all such instincts and you will find they assist the animal to successfully cope with its environment. In short, animals have a success instinct. We often overlook the fact that man, too, has a success instinct. Much more marvelous and much more complex than that of any animal. Our creator did not shortchange man. On the other hand, man was especially blessed in this regard. Animals cannot select their goals. Their goals, self-preservation and procreation, are preset, so to speak, and their success mechanism is limited to these built-in goal images, which we call instincts.
Man, on the other hand, has something animals haven't creative imagination. Thus, man, of all creatures, is more than a creature. He is also a creator. With his imagination, he can formulate a variety of goals. Man alone can direct his success mechanism by the use of imagination or imagining ability. We often think of creative imagination as applying only to poets, inventors, and the like. But imagination is creative in everything we do. Although they did not understand why or how imagination sets our creative mechanism into action, serious thinkers of all ages, as well as hard-headed practical men, have recognized the fact and made use of it. Imagination rules the world, said Napoleon. Imagination of all man's facilities is the most godlike, said Glenn Clark. The facility of imagination is the great spring of human activity and the principal source of human improvement. Destroy this facility and the condition of man will become as stationary as that of the brutes, said Dugald Stewart, the famous Scottish philosopher. You can imagine your future, says Henry J. Kaiser, who attributes much of his success to, in business to the constructive, positive use of creative imagination. How to use your success me mechanism, how your success mechanism works. You are not a machine. You are not a machine. But new discoveries in science of cybernetics all point to the conclusion that your physical brain and nervous systems make up a servo mechanism which you use, which operates very much like an electronic computer and a mechanical goal-seeking device. Your brain and nervous system constitute a goal-striving mechanism which operates automatically to achieve a certain goal, very much as a self-aiming torpedo or missile seeks out its target and steers its way to it. Your built-in servo mechanism functions both as a guidance system to automatically steer you in the right direction and achieve certain goals or make correct responses to environment and also as an electronic brain which can function automatically to solve problems, give you needed answers, and provide new ideas or inspirations. In his book, The Computer and the Brain, Dr. John Von Neumann says that the human brain processes the attributes of both the analog and the digital computer. The word cybernetics comes from the Greek word, which means literally the steersman. Cerebral mechanisms are so constructed that they automatically steer their way to a goal, target, or answer. Psycho-cybernetics, a new concept of how your brain works. When we conceive the human, of the human brain and nervous system as a form of cerebral mechanism operating in accordance with cybernetic principles, we gain a new insight into the why and wherefore of human behavior. I choose to call this new concept psycho-cybernetics. The principle of cybernetics has applied to the human brain as applied to the human brain. I must repeat, psychocybernetics does not say that man is a machine. Rather, it says 
that man has a machine which he uses. Let's examine some of these similarities between mechanical cerebral mechanisms and the human brain. The two general types of cerebral mechanisms. Cerebral mechanisms are divided into two general types. One, where the target, goal, or answer is known and the object is to reach it or accomplish it. And two, where the target or answer is not known and the object is to discover or locate it. The human brain and nervous system operates in both ways. An example of the first type is the self-guided torpedo or the interceptor missile. The target or goal is known, an enemy ship or plane. The object is to reach it. The objective is to reach it. Such machines must know the target they are shooting for. They must have some sort of propulsion system which propels them forward in the general direction of the target. They must be equipped with sense organs, radar, sonar, heat perceptors, etc., which bring information from the target. These sense organs keep the machine informed when it is on the correct course. Positive feedback. Yep. And when it commits an error and gets off course, uh, negative feedback, the machine does not react or respond to the positive feedback. It is doing the correct thing already and just keeps on doing what it is doing. There must be a corrective device, however, which will respond to negative feedback. When negative feedback informs the mechanism that it is off and off the beam too far to the right, the corrective mechanism automatically causes the rudder to move so that it will steer to the machine back to the left. If it overcorrects and heads too far to the left, this mistake is made known through the negative feedback and the corrective device moves the rudder so it will steer the machine back to the right. The torpedo accomplishes its goal by going forward, making errors and continually correcting them. By a series of zigzags, it literally gropes its way to the goal. Kind of sounds like what I'm doing here with the podcast, huh? Like, um, you know, I'm going forward, I'm making errors, and I'm continually correcting them by a series of zigzags. I'm literally groping <laughs> my way to the goal. Dr. Norbert Weiner, who pioneered the development of goal-seeking mechanisms in World War II, believes that something very similar to the foregoing happens in the human nervous system. Whenever you perform any purposeful activity, even in such a simple goal-seeking situation as picking up a package of cigarettes from a table, we are able to accomplish this goal by picking up the cigarettes because of an automatic mechanism and not by will and forebrain thinking alone. All that the forebrain does is to select the goal triggered into action by desire and feed information to the automatic mechanism so that your hand continuously corrects its course. In the first place, said Dr. Weiner, only an autonomous 
would know all the muscles involved in picking up the cigarettes. And if you knew, you would not consciously say to yourself, I must contract my shoulder muscle to elevate my arm. Now I must contract my tricep to extend my arm, etc. You just go ahead and pick up the cigarettes and are not conscious of issuing orders to individual muscles, nor of computing just how much con contraction is needed. When you select, a goal, select the goal and trigger it into action, an automatic mechanism takes over. First of all, you have picked up cigarettes. You have picked up cigarettes or performed similar movements before. Your automatic mechanism has learned something of the correct response needed. Next, your automatic mechanism uses feedback data furnished to the brain by your eyes, which tells it the degree to which the cigarettes are not picked up. This feedback data enables the automatic mechanism to continually correct the motion of your hand until it is steered to the cigarettes. In a baby, just learning to use its muscles, the correction of the hand in reaching for the rattle is very obvious. The baby has little stored information to draw upon. Its hand zigzags back and forth and gropes obviously as it reaches. It is, char it is characteristic of all learning that as learning takes place, correction becomes more and more refined. We see this in a person just learning to drive a car who overcorrects and zigzags back and forth across the street. Once, however, a correct or su successful response has been accomplished, it is remembered for future use. The automatic mechanism then duplicates this successful response on future trials. It has learned how to respond successfully. It remembers its successes, forgets its failures, and repeats the successful action without any further conscious thought or as a habit. How your brain finds answers to problems. Now let us suppose that the room is dark so that you cannot see the cigarettes. You know or hope they there is a package of cigarettes on the table along with a variety of other objects. It's kind of strange that they pick cigarettes of all things to, uh, to talk about here. But uh, nonetheless, they did, and we're talking about them. So instinctively, your hand will begin to grope back and forth, performing zigzag motions or scanning, rejecting one object after another until the cigarettes are found and recognized. This is an example of the second type of cerebral mechanism. Recalling a name temporarily forgotten is another example. A scanner in your brain scans back through the stored memories until the correct name is recognized. An electronic brain solves problems in much the same way. First of all, a great deal of data must be fed into the machine. The stored and recorded information is the machine's memory. A problem is posed to the machine. It scans back through its memory until it locates the only answer, which is consistent with and meets all the conditions of the problem. Problem and answer together constitute a whole situation or structure. When part of the situation or structure, the problem, is given to the machine, it locates 
the only missing parts or the right size brick, so to speak, to complete the structure. The more that is learned about the human brain, the more closely it resembles insofar as function in is concerned a cerebral mechanism. For example, Dr. Wilder Penfield, director of the Montreal Neurological Institute, recently reported at a meeting of the National Academy of Sciences that he had discovered a recording mechanism in a small area of the brain, which apparently faithfully records everything that a person has ever experienced, observed, or learned during a brain operation in which the patient was fully awake, Dr. Penfield happened to touch a small area of the cortex, which, with a surgical instrument, at once the patient explained that she was reliving an incident from her childhood, which she had consciously forgotten. Further experiments along this line brought the same results. When certain areas of the cortex were touched, patients did not merely remember past experiences, they relived them, experiencing as very real all the sights, sounds, and sensations of the original experience. It was just as if past experiences had been recorded on a tape recorder and played back. Just how a mechanism as small as the human brain can store such vast amount of information is still a mystery. But British neurophysicist W. Gray Walter has said that at least 10 billion electronic cells would be needed to build a facey smile of man's brain. Sounds like a fax to me. These cells would occupy about a million and a half cubic feet, and several additional millions of cubic feet would be needed for the nerves and wiring power requirement required to operate. It would be one billion watts. A look at the automatic mechanism in action. We marvel at an awesome at the awesomeness of interceptor missiles which can compute in a flash the point of interception of another missile and be there at the correct instant to make contact yet we are not witnessing something just as wonderful each time we see a center center fielder catch a fly ball in order to compute where the ball will fall or where the point of interception will be he must take into account the speed of the ball its curvature, a fall, its direction, windage, initial velocity, and the rate of progressive decrease in velocity. He must make these consumptions or co co <laughs> computations so fast that he will be able to take off at the crack of the bat. Next, he must compute just how fast he must run and in what direction in order to arrive at that point of interception. At the same time the ball does, the center fielder doesn't even think about this. His built-in goal-striving mechanism computes it all for him from, from data which he feeds it through his 
eyes and ears. The computer in his brain takes the information, compares it with the stored data, memories of other successes and failures in catching fly balls. All necessary computations are made in a flash, and orders are issued to his leg muscles, and he just runs. So that sounds like a lot of stuff, um, and that's the cool thing. Like our the machine that we use, the the that's in our you know our body, our mind, you know this this temple that God has given us. How cool, right? Like like it's a very complex world and, and situation, but it's so simplified for us. And sometimes we make things harder than they need to be. But that's why I'm reading this stuff to you so that you got kind of an idea of what's really going on in your brain and, and how it's working and and how to, you know, take full advantage of um, of the information in here so that you can live the best life ever. Science can build the computer, but not the operator. So God built the built this machine and but he, you know, but you have free will to operate it the way you want. So anyway, Dr. We Weiner has said that at no time in the foreseeable future will scientists be able to construct an electronic brain anywhere near comparable to the human brain. I think that our gadget conscious public has shown an unawareness to of the special advantages and special disadvantages of electronic machinery as compared with the human brain, he says. The number of switching devices in the human brain vastly exceed the number in any computing machine yet developed or even thought of for design in the near future. Well, this is in the 60s, folks, so, you know, we've, got, we've come a long ways with all this, and I think I think this, some of this is like definitely catching up to him. But anyway, but even should such a machine be built, it would lack an operator. Then again, we got AI, right? So a computer does not have to have a forebrain nor an eye. It cannot pose problems to itself. It has no imagination and cannot set goals for itself cannot determine which goals are worthwhile and which are not. It has no emotions. It cannot feel. It works only on new data fed to it by the operator. By feedback data, it secures from its own sense organs and from information previously stored. Is there an infinite storehouse of ideas, knowledge, and power? <clears throat> Many great thinkers of all ages have believed that man's stored information is not limited to his own memories of the past experiences and learned facts. There is one mind common to all individual men, said Emerson, who compared our individual minds to the inlets in an ocean of universal mind. Edison believed that he got some of his ideas from a source outside himself. Once when complimented for a creative idea, he disclaimed credit, saying that ideas are in the air, and if he had not discovered it, someone else would have. Dr. J.B. Rhine, head of Duke University 
parapsychology laboratory has proved ex experimentally that man has access to knowledge, facts, and ideas other than his own individual memory or stored information from learning or experience. Telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition have been established by scientific laboratory experiments. His findings that man possess some extrasensory factor, which he calls PSI, are no longer doubted by scientists who have seriously reviewed his work. As Professor R. H. Tholis of Cambridge University says, the reality of the phenomena must be regarded as proved as certainly as anything in science research can be proved. We have found, says Dr. Ryan, that there is a capacity for acquiring knowledge that transcends the sensory functions. This extrasensory capacity can give us knowledge certainly of a objective and very likely of subjective states, knowledge of matter and most probably of minds. Schubert is said to have told his friends that his own creative process consists in remembering a melody that neither he nor anyone else had ever thought of before. Many creative artists, as well as psych psychologists who have made a study of the creative process, have been impressed by the similarity or creative inspiration, sudden revelation, intuition, etc., in ordinary human memory. Searching for a new idea or a new answer to a problem is in fact very similar to searching memory for a name you have forgotten. You know that the name is there or else you wouldn't you would not search. The scanner in your brain scans back over stored memories until the desired name is recognized or discovered. The answer exists now. I'm telling you in much the same way when we set out to find a new idea or the answer to a problem we must assume that the answer already exists somewhere and set out to find it dr norbert weiner has said once a scientist attacks a problem which he knows to have an answer his entire attitude has changed he is already some 50 percent of his way towards that answer Norbert Weiner, the human use of the human beings, blah, 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 uh, when you set out to do creative work, whether in the field of selling, managing a business, writing a sonnet, improving human relations, or whatever, you begin with a goal in mind, an end to be achieved, a target answer, which, although perhaps somewhat vague, will be recognized when achieved. If you really mean business, have an intense desire and become and begin to think intensely about all angles of the problem, your creative mechanism goes to work and the scanner we spoke of earlier begins to scan back through the stored information or grope its way to an answer.
it selects an idea here, a fact there, a series of former experiences, and relates them or ties them together into a meaningful whole which will fill out the incompleted portion of the situation. Complete your equation or solve your problem. When the solution is served up to your consciousness, often at an unguarded moment when you are thinking of something else, or perhaps even as a dream while your consciousness is asleep, something clicks. And you, at once, recognize this is, this has the answer that you've been searching for. In this process, does your creative mechanism also have access to stored information in the universal mind? Numerous experiences of creative workers would seem to indicate that it does. However, how, how else, for example, explain the experience of Louis Agassiz, told by his wife? He had been striving to decipher the somewhat obscure impression of a fossil fish on a stone slab in which it was preserved, weary and perplexed. He put his work aside at last and tried to dismiss it from his mind. Shortly after, he, he waked one night, persuaded that while asleep, he had seen the fish with all the missing features perfectly restored. He went early to the Jardin des Plantes, thinking that on looking anew at the impression, he would see something to put him, him on track of his vision. In vain, the blurred record was as blank as ever. The next night, he saw the fish again. But when he waked, it disappeared from his memory as before, hoping the same experience might be repeated. On the third night, he placed a pencil and paper beside the bed before going to sleep. Guess what? Towards morning, the fish reappeared in his dream, Consider, confused at, confusedly at first, but at last, with such distinctiveness that he no longer had any doubts as to its zoological characteristics or character. Still half dreaming in perfect darkness, he traced these characters on the sheet of paper at the bedside. In the morning, he was surprised to see in his nocturnal sketch features, which he thought it impossible, the fossil itself would reveal. He hastened to the Jardins des Plantes and with his drawing as a guide, succeeded in chiseling away the surface of the stone under which portions of the fish proved to be hidden. When wholly exposed, the fossil corresponded with his dream and his drawing, and he succeeded in clarifying it with ease. So I'm going to give you a practice exercise here now. 
this is this is probably the best part of 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 listening to me here with these with this book um and and listening to what they're talking about because getting the exercises is how you're going to change your life so practice exercise number one numeral uno The unhappy, failure-type personality cannot develop a new self-image by pure willpower or by arbitrarily deciding to. There must be some grounds, some justification, some reason for deciding that the old picture of self is in error and that a new picture is appropriate. You cannot merely imagine a new self-image unless you feel that it is based upon truth. Experiences has shown that when a person does change his self-image, he has the feeling that for one reason or another, he sees or realizes the truth about himself. The truth in this chapter can set you free of an old inadequate self-image. If you read it often, think intently about the implications and hammer home its truths to yourself. Science has now confirmed what philosophers, mystics, and other intuitive people have long declared. Every human being has been literally engineered for success. By his creator, every human being has access to a power greater than himself. This means you. Talking to you. As Emerson had, has said, There are no great and no small. If you were engineered for success and happiness, then the old picture of yourself is unworthy of a, of happiness or a person who was meant to fail must be an error. Read this chapter through at least three times per week for the first 21 days or listen to, to me read this to you for at, le at least three times per week for the next 21 days. Study it and digest it. Look for examples in your experiences and the experiences of your friends, which illustrate the creative mechanism in action. Memorize the following basic principles by which you success, your success mechanism operates. You do not need to be an electronic engineer or a physicist to operate your own cerebral mechanism any more than you have to be able to be to engineer an automobile in order to drive one or become an electrical engineer in order to turn on the light in your room. You do need to be familiar with the following, however, because having memorized them, they will throw new light on what is to follow. One, your built-in success mechanism must have a goal or a target. This goal or target must be conceived of as already in existence now, either in actual or potential form. It operates by either steering you to the goal already in existence or by two, discovering something already in existence. All right, part two of this. The automatic mechanism is teleological. That is, operates or must be oriented to end results. Goals. Do not be discouraged 
because the means whereby may not be apparent, it is the function of the automatic mechanism to supply the means whereby when you supply the goal, think in terms of the result of the end result, and the means whereby will often take care of themselves. Number three, do not be afraid of making mistakes or of temporary failures. All cerebral mechanisms achieve a goal by negative feedback or by going forward making mistakes and immediately course correcting or correcting self correcting course. Number four, skill learning of any kind is accomplished by trial and error. Mentally correcting aim after an error will until a successful motion, movement, or performance has been achieved. After that, further learning as continued success is accomplished by forgetting the past errors and remembering the successful response so that it can be animated. Number five this is the last part of it. You must learn to trust your creative mechanism to do its work and not jam it by becoming too concerned or too anxious as to whether it will work or not, or by attempting to force it by too much conscious effort. You must let it work rather than make it work. This trust is necessary because your creative mechanism operates below a level of consciousness and you cannot know what is going on beneath the surface. Moreover, its nature, its is to operate spontaneously according to present need. Therefore, you have no guarantees in advance. It comes into operation as you act and as you place demand upon it by your actions. You must not wait to act until you have proof. You must act as if it is there and it will all come through. Do the things and you will have the power, said Emerson. Now, I'm assuming for any of you out there that were like myself, I should probably read it one more time to you versus you having to rewind this. Um, but feel free to do it any way you want. So I'm going to start with number one. Your built-in success mechanism must have a goal or a target. The goal or target must be conceived of as already in existence. Now, either in actual or potential form, it operates by either steering you to a goal already in existence or by discovering something already in existence. Two, the automatic mechanism is teleological, that is, operates or must be oriented to end results. Do not be discouraged because this means whereby may not be apparent it is the function of the automatic mechanism to supply the means whereby when you supply the goal the end result think in terms of the end result and the means whereby will often take care of themselves number three do not be afraid of making mistakes or of temporary failures. All serving mechanisms achieve a goal by negative feedback 
or by going forward making mistakes and immediately correcting course. Number four, skill learning of any kind is accomplished by trial and error, mentally correcting aim after an error until a successful motion, movement, or performance has been achieved. After that, further learning and continued success is accomplished by forgetting the past errors and remembering the successful response so that it can be imitated. Number five. You must learn to trust your creative mechanism to do its work and not jam it by becoming too concerned or too anxious as to whether it will work or not, or by attempting to force it by too much conscious effort. You must let it work rather than make it work. This trust is necessary because your creative mechanism operates below a level of consciousness in your, and you cannot know what is going on beneath the surface. Moreover, its nature is to operate spontaneously according to present need. Therefore, you have no guarantees in advance. It comes into operation as you act and as you place demand upon it by your actions. You must not wait to act until you have proof. You must act as if there, it is there and it will come through. I promise you. Do the thing and you will have the power, said Emerson. Do the thing and you will have the power. So that's chapter two of Psycho-Cybernetics, um, written by uh, Dr. Maxwell Maltz. And um, I think I'm going to end it for right now, and then we'll get into uh, the next chapter, uh, or maybe I'll break it down. I also have some other stuff I wanted to uh, to read um, on leadership, because leadership is a really huge deal right now, um, and most everyone either has to work or wants to work or does something for a living, um, you know, just to participate in this world. And I feel like it's one of the least talked about and discussed um, things out there, but it's like the most necessary. And there's all different styles of leadership out there. Um, but there's for, for the times that we're going through right now, some very disruptive times, I think it's very important that um, we can understand, you know, what leadership virtues um, you need for these disruptive times. So a book I picked up by Tom Ziegler, um, I want to share some of that stuff with you as well. Um, so anyway, hopefully uh, you enjoyed today's session, and um, thanks for joining me. Again, my name is Jasper. Have a fantastic day. Namaste. Aloha.